Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 325 of the podcast. It's November 26th, 2018. I hope you had a lot to be thankful for last week uh, with the Thanksgiving holiday, if you're listening uh, in the United States, and I hope you have a lot to be grateful for um, anyway, no matter where you live. Um, I'm thankful today to be joined. I've got as, uh, as my guest, Andrea Hardaway. She is a consultant and operational leader. She's the executive director of the Association for Vocal Disorders, a nonprofit organization. Well, and Andrea and I first crossed paths thanks to LinkedIn. You know, I saw what she was sharing there and, and vice versa. We were you know, commenting on each other's posts, realized that we had a lot of shared views on things. We also had a chance to visit a hospital together in Florida last year to learn about their lean improvement work. And so, you know, we have enough professional interests in common. I thought it made sense to record a conversation and share it here with the listeners. Andrea has worked in manufacturing, healthcare, and other parts of the service sector, and has seen common themes across industries. And one of those is seeing the opportunity to better utilize metrics in a way that resonates better with staff and is connected to improvement work, something I'm also very interested in, um, of course. So the uh, title of today's episode is Making Metrics Matter. We're going to talk about um, all of this and more. If you want to find links to Andrea's profile, um, if she makes a a book recommendation toward the end of the podcast, a, a book called How to Measure Anything, You can find all of that and information about how to subscribe by going to leanblog.org slash three, two, five. Andrea, hi. Thanks for being a guest on the podcast. How are you? Hey, Mark. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about metrics and and lean and related topics today. But, you know, before we get into that, um, as we usually do here, if you can uh, start off, you know, introducing yourself and a little bit about your career and background. Yeah, most definitely. And it's funny, I actually started off as an engineer. I was the classic tech head type Mm -hmm. person and thought that's what my journey was going to be. And then I found myself being really interested in people and service. And I always say if I could do it all over again, I probably would have just, if I were going to go into engineering, it probably would have been industrial engineering, not necessarily electrical. I just really love people and don't really like being behind a computer quite a lot. But um, I've got about 15 years of experience with lean performance management and operational leadership through a variety of industries, logistics, telecommunications, government and defense contracting, gaming, casual dining. So a lot of different industries, which is the benefit of being laid off, by the way, (laughs) you get to move from one industry. Yeah. You know, and still see that you can tie these skills together. But um, I, I am most recently doing operations consultant work focus on driving excellence within service-based industries. And I, and I have a specific affinity to healthcare. So within healthcare, most of my experience is on the payer or the insurance side, several years experience there. And I've also worked on the hospital side. I helped set up the operational excellence uh, infrastructure with the seven hospital system. But um, more than anything, wherever I am within healthcare, I'm really laser focused on improving the patient experience through operational and service excellence. And and you have experience through your career with both Lean and Six Sigma. I I do. And and I think that's the interesting part of starting off as an engineer. And I've actually got minors in computer science and math. 
So while in the work world, working for a government and defense contractor, they noticed that, you know, I had really good technical skills, but I also had this great ability to influence the team. So I was very privileged to get put into the Lean and Six Sigma training program at Lockheed Martin, which is probably one of the best one of the best on that side. And I went through um, Green Belt training as well as Black Belt, did several projects there. And it, it really changed the direction of my career, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I understand what you're saying because uh, I, I graduated from undergrad with a degree in industrial engineering, but it took me a while to get there. I started off uh, in chemical engineering and material science. And I realized I was less interested at looking at the world through a microscope or an electron microscope <laughs> than I was at stepping back and looking at organizations and systems and, and people. So I, I understand that appeal, but it's good that you were able to um, take your career in a direction that, that seems to fit with you and your interest yeah. and personality. Most, right? most definitely. I'm, I'm a lot happier now. And I, I think I really like understanding the language of the business, why we do what we do and who we serve. And sometimes if you're more in a technical role, you might just focus specifically on that element that you're working on, unless you have the mind to go outside. And typically that happens through lean training where you mm-hmm. develop that behavior and you know to look outside of it. But, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm be curious to hear your thoughts on shifting from uh, manufacturing, you know, Lockheed Martin to different um, service sectors. Um, you know, what are, are there, is it more important or what, what jump comes to mind if we talk about, you know, differences in those different environments or some of the, co- or do the common themes related to improving a business stand out? Yeah. So I, so, so I can kind of see it from both sides. You know, one of the biggest things that I see is a lot of times when, uh, when the training comes from the manufacturing side and then you try to translate that to the service industry, we're still using, using the word widget. And, you know, everywhere I go, I'm like, okay, the, the almighty widget, here we go. And, and that works well in manufacturing. We can see it, we can touch it, we can feel it. However, in the service-based industry, a lot of times you're dealing with people and their actual experience. So, so how do you look at things in that way? So with a widget, this inanimate object, you can see how it changes in, in form and structure and how it builds. And with the people on the service side, you really have to develop a skill of putting yourself in their shoes, understanding what they're looking for, what might be missing, what they're feeling, and what they need. So it, it just requires you to look at things from a different perspective. And I, I think that's sort of the biggest thing, but there, there are some common themes, right? I mean, turnover time, turnover time is important, whether you're looking at, looking at how long it takes you, turnaround time, whether you're looking at how long it takes you to get a widget through a process or to get a patient in and out of the door, you know, time is something that's always very important. And I think about like the core measures, right? So on the manufacturing side, we looked at quality. We looked at financial metrics, which would typically be cost, we looked at schedule metrics, and then we looked internal at uh, satisfaction metrics, and that's the internal teams you work with. That translates very well to the service industry. What's the quality of my service? How do I measure that? What are indicators of the quality of my service? You know, looking at scheduling, do I deliver what I say I would deliver when I say I would? Looking at the cost of doing that, and then looking at satisfaction internal to the operations as well as to your external customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when I started in the auto industry, the, the mantra was uh, SQDCM, safety, quality, delivery, which is schedule, 
um, cost and, and morale. And, you know, I, I, no matter how we frame it, um, with, with which, which letters and which categories, I, I think those are pretty transferable categories. You know, okay. in healthcare, quality and safety are two sides of the same coin. Are we providing the right treatment the right way and without error? You know, that error obviously has a patient safety component. Um, but I'm sure when, when you're working in the hospital side, and, and before we dive deeper in the metrics, I'd like to ask you a little, little bit about the payer side. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, on the hospital side, I'm, I'm sure you were hit with this too. Um, somebody says, well, you know, patients are not cars. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So, well, then you know, how, how, how to respond or how to continue that conversation? Because I, I think sometimes people are trying to shut down lean or lessons for manufacturing. Like, well, yeah, you're, you're right. Patients are not cars, but... I mean, how would you continue that? Patients are not cars, but they are very much on a journey, just like a vehicle. They are, and we need to make sure they can get where they need to go with the most certainty that they ended up in the right place. And I think that's, that's the best way to look at it. And I love that word journey when mm -hmm. you think about the patient, because if you look at it, you know, every patient has a name and every name is tied to a person and every person has a story. So their story begins well before they enter the hospital or the medical office. There are influencing factors that brought them into the door. Those factors are a part of their journey. Those factors are a part of the reason they come in agitated or come in just complacent or however they come in. And we in a service-based industry have to be prepared to deal with that patient in that way. So you mentioned quality. So clinical quality is cer certainly important from a number from a number of different angles, but also yeah. it's the quality of service. And, mm -hmm. and when you think about that, you think about empathy, right? How do how do I how do I have empathy with a patient? And that's not always something that can be easily taught. It's not just a formula. If the patient comes in mad, do this. If they come in sad, do that. It's not that. So what we actually have to teach is how do I put myself in this person's shoes? what may be going on, how do I put myself aside, because I'm still a part of their story, but they're still the star. How do I put myself aside and help them in their journey? Yeah, and I think one of the key differences, you know, in manufacturing, the products, the components uh, don't have feelings and emotion. <laughs> if a part is delayed from the supplier, the part's not grumbling about it. But in service industries, and I imagine the same would be true in restaurants or on the payer side, if, if someone's calling with a complaint or a question about their insurance, there's uh, the, the elements of service quality and, and the emotion that enter into the experience. That, that's, a, I think, a, you know, a different equation. The customer is not this kind of generalized, vague off in another place, uh, person or organization, the, the, the customer is right there, right there right. in front of you, right? Right. And, and you know what, and when I think about it from the payer side, right, so we talked about how their journey starts well before they walk into the door of a facility. Their journey continues when they leave the facility. And one of the things that, and we talked about how do we translate from manufacturing to service. Well, when I worked in the government and defense contracting industry, one of the things that we would always say is do your job as if someone's life depends on it, because it does. Because we were developing equipment for our soldiers out in the field. Well, in healthcare, that couldn't be more true. Do your job as if someone's life depends on it, because mm -hmm. it does. And that's the mm -hmm. same on the payer side, right? We need to pay these claims in a timely way, 
We need to make sure that we pay them accurately. The physicians do not need to be caught up on the administrative side of sending in documents and reprocessing and all of that. We need to free up their time to focus on the value which is the patient. I would hate to think that a cancer patient is sitting at home with stage four cancer, uncertain of whether or not they can have their next treatment because we may have processed some payment wrong with the mm -hmm. insurance company. And guess what? Those stresses happen. They propagate in the families. The payer side is very confusing and complex. So they don't understand all of that. All they know is I, either you're gonna pay for this treatment or you're not. And if they feel like you're not, then that creates stress, which then becomes a cycle, a part of their journey. They become more sick from mm -hmm. the stress. So even the payer side is very important on the patient journey. Yeah. Oh, and, and I'm just going to, since you're, I've never worked on the payer side and, and you have, I'm just going to throw a scenario at you just because uh, th this happened recently. Um, I, 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 had a, I had a stomach bug, ended up um, dehydrated in the emergency room. And so, you know, I've got insurance and there were co-pays and things I had to pay on the spot. But the other day I got three separate bills because they ended up taking a chest x-ray and I, I don't know, I assume that was medically necessary in their judgment <laughs> it was. But I got a bill for labs for $3.45. Mm -hmm. I got a bill from the radiology group for like $5.20. And then there was a third bill. Um, for like, you know, for $7. I thought, is it really cost effective to send out bills that are that small? It, it, wow. is, it is not. You know, from a patient's perspective, it's extremely stressful, first of all. I had, a, I had an eye surgery, not to take away from your stomach bug, but I had, I had a little yeah. eye surgery, and I was told that the procedure would cost me, after my insurance and everything, the procedure would cost me about $700 out of pocket. Fine. I was prepared to pay the $700 out of pocket. That's what the doctor's office worked, worked with me on. What they didn't tell me is that the, anesthe the anesthesiologist was out of network and that would cost me an additional like three uh, grand or something mm, crazy. Now, well, to yeah. them, it wasn't their job, right? They scheduled with yeah. their physician, the surgical facility brings in the anesthesiologist, all of this. But what you just identified is a huge gap in the healthcare mm. industry. And it is a significant, yeah. a significant thing that could be improved and drive improvement throughout the healthcare healthcare mm -hmm. ecosystem. I mean, that is not necessary at all. And then think about the poor person in the in the surgical center or in the emergency room or wherever you are who has to process all of these things and then manage this billing is a headache. It's, it's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I looked at it as more of, I mean, I just kind of laughed. It was kind of an irritation. Like the process person in me says, you know, fine, I'll go to three different websites and type, type, click, and my credit card is stored in the browser. And all right, it's not that much work. I can pay the bill without, uh, I don't care about the 50 cent stamp. But I was just thinking of like, how, oh, I, know it, I know it costs them more to process and receive the bill than, than it was worth. So I wonder why, why do they not just write off small amounts like that? But I'm, I was thankful to not get hit by the out of network surprise that you described, because I've seen more and more news stories about this. And, and this is uh, a huge financial surprise and it's a stress um, that, you know, I think people are trying to figure out how can we, how can we prevent that? And, and, and I don't think it's fair to put it on a patient who might be sick or injured or in no position to say, okay, wait a minute, time out. Are you in network? Exactly. I mean, that's, that's just not appropriate. Exactly. It shouldn't be their job, right? Yeah. It shouldn't be their job. And the worst thing is when you think you, you know, you get these three bills, they look like they're 
for the same thing. So you pay the highest one thinking mm -hmm. you're taken care of. Some people will do that. And then you have a dollar and 25 cents going to a collections agency. I mean, it makes yeah. absolutely no sense. It, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of, as always, there are many opportunities uh, for improvement in, in this system. But yeah, um, yeah. but let, let, let's go ahead and dive into, you know, the main topic here, uh, you know, metrics in the workplace. Um, you know, it's a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And it's not that having metrics in, its, in and of itself fixes anything, but it's a necessary part of the equation, right? So uh, can, you, can you share some of your perspectives on, on why this is an important topic? Oh, definitely. And, and I will tell you that my first experience, you, you know, every job I had, they, they measured things. And I was, you know, I was just like, okay, we measure things. And I didn't really understand how it tied to me specifically. When I did go through that Lean and Six Sigma training, I was also put in a role of a performance management lead for several different divisions within the company. And again, this was the government and defense contracting industry. And I had the opportunity to see performance management done right. And it is it was amazing to see how data actually drives business decisions. And it's, and it's not just, and when I say data, I'm not just talking about a data point. I'm talking about using data to tell the story of what is actually happening in the process mm -hmm. and then being able to tie that to the actual business needs. And this is especially important in publicly traded companies where individuals who have a vested interest in the company actually see that they have the power to influence the value of that organization. So very interested in, in um, metrics from that standpoint. And just from a performance management standpoint, not only was I developing metrics within this organization, and I hate to say, to say I, I'll say I, I led the development of these metrics, but it was really the team, right? They had to have ownership. They knew, they knew sometimes in layman's terms what they needed to do. They knew what they needed to deliver, but they didn't know how to translate that to to numbers-based information that mattered. So just going through that process of developing the metrics and some of the categories that you and I spoke about earlier, the cost, the quality, the schedule, developing that story and then seeing the, seeing the lights glow in the eyes of the team members, mm -hmm. seeing them get excited and passionate and take ownership of what they do because they truly understand how it impacts their customer, how it impacts the business. Yeah, so we'll, we'll come back and talk more about the, those ideas of, of connections between metrics and the work and, and the improvement at, at that individual level. Um, I like what you said about the idea of data and you added, well, you know, not just a data point. So you know, when, we, when we talk about uh, people use the phrase data-driven decision-making or data-driven management, um, I, there's somebody I was talking to a year or two ago and they joked, yeah, but we need to move beyond single data point driven. We, we, we look at data in the more collective sense in terms of what trends are we seeing in our metrics. And, and like you said, that this is one thing I emphasized in, in my book here. It, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily the story we want to tell. It's the story, the honest story that the metrics and the process are, are telling us, right? And trying to reflect that. Yes, indeed. And I'll tell you, you know, I, I really am enjoying your book, by the way. <laughs> I think I mentioned Thank that you. to you. And, and one reason is because we had a chance to talk when we first met a couple of years ago in Orlando, and we talked about this similar thing 
And then, you know, to see it in your book and it, it really does matter. And so often, and, and this happens a lot in leadership, leadership will respond to just one data point. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one thing that looks awry and we're putting action committees in place and root cause analysis and all of this when we are, we are, and they typically say in the Six Sigma world, you're responding to special cause variation as though it's common cause. And that's mm-hmm. what happens all the time when you just look at one data point. But right. let's think about it in terms of morale. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about earlier, what does that do to a team? It tells that team, hey, you cannot make any mistakes ever. As a matter of fact, you're not human. Just think of yourself as a widget or a machine because you can't go out of bounds at all. But going out of bounds is what humans do and it's what drives continuous improvement. So I think it is very important to make sure that we see the story of that process. And and I will add too, yes, it is a series of data points over time, but sometimes it is looking at metrics in tandem and in partnership with one another to tell the story. So if you are are a leader, and I'll just throw this out to anyone who's listening, if you're a leader and you're newer to using data to, to measure and manage your organization, work with your team to understand how that data point could have been influenced from within your organization or from outside of your organization. And then use that information to determine if you are even indeed measuring the right things to begin with. Yeah, and, and so yeah, there's, yeah, there's two important questions. Are you measuring the right things? And then how are you looking at the metrics you've decided? And uh, you know, the, the, there's other people who've written books around what to measure. You know, I think of um, Pascal Dennis and his book, Getting the Right Things Done, about lean and strategy deployment. And, and there are other books um, about that. But I think when we start looking at the reactions and the decisions um, to, to what's actually happening, I, I think one other aspect of, I think there's two aspects of morale. One is, I think, you know, as you said, if a metric is not allowed to ever go out of bounds, then people will do all sorts of dysfunctional things to make the metric look right when yep. the underlying system is not better. We've seen that with Wells Fargo, um, you know, when there was this mandate of, uh, you know, eight is great. You know, every customer needs to have eight accounts. And so people started, you know, employees and, and branch managers put employees under pressure. Well, you got to hit that target no matter what. Well, the no matter what, unfortunately, included opening accounts without customers' permission and, and saddling them with fees. And so um, I think that, you know, there's an important point there about, you know, looking at, you know, if the story is we're not performing where we need to improve, where, where, where we need to be, how do we drive improvement instead of just getting upset and pressuring people, right? Right. And, and I've got another example, too, that ties to that. So looking, so we talk about the service industry and, and one place that this happens in all industries, if you ever have like a help desk or anywhere where they, where they respond to support tickets. I was working with an organization and, and the goal was, you know, we didn't want to have any tickets over 30 days. And our, our goal was really to solve all tickets within seven days, right? So all tickets need to be solved within seven days. And we don't want to have any tickets over 30 days. And this was just the mandate. Well, that works if all tickets are created equally. Unfortunately, that drove the behavior where team members were cherry picking the tickets, yeah. right? So they're, tra- they're solving the easiest ones and avoiding mm-hmm. the critical ones because they didn't want their name to be tied to something that took longer than seven days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then when it started getting to 30 days, 
one of two things would happen. Either they would quickly fix a critical issue, causing errors, which will cause the generation mm -hmm. of another ticket. Now that wasn't being tracked, right? We closed the one, we're not tracking yeah. the rework and the repeat business, or they would simply assign the ticket to another department to start the clock over. So you, you are exactly right about metrics and, and what we measure, how we communicate about those things, driving behavior. And it's real, and, and you say, well, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? You know, do I look at, look at the behavior that I want and then create the metric or do I create the metric and watch the behavior? I think it's a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a continual process. I think if you, anytime you put a new metric in place, you need to watch the behavior. Mm -hmm. you need on the floor talking with the people who influence this measure and you need to allow people to be honest and you need to reward that on i you know so i was saying a friend of mine who is doing some consulting work with um, one of these city bike share programs mm -hmm. and so one of their core activities is repairing the bikes and so the people doing the repair have um, certain targets for you need to fix X number of bikes per day. But to your point exactly, not all bike repair is the same. So you can cherry pick the easy ones. Yep. And, and, uh, and, and you know, maybe the goal is to get more bikes out into service. So maybe that isn't the most dysfunctional thing. But I think that that's a judgment, I guess, to, to your point about you need to look and see what's the impact of the metric or do we need some sort of counterbalancing metric to, to try to prevent dysfunction. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Totally agree with that. Uh, the, the other thing I was going to touch on when it comes to morale is, I, you know, I think there are times where you see a metric where uh, it, it's fluctuating. And I was talking to someone the other day who had a scenario where the organization only posted the last four data points, which is to me is a very limited set of data. It's better than one or two data points. But, you know, they had a situation where the metric had been green, 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 and now it became red. Well, then, like what you were describing a couple of minutes ago, the reaction, the uh, hand wringing, the root cause questions, the action team, where like not, nothing changed. The same system that gener generated the green metric is occasionally, if, 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 if performance is kind of near the target, sometimes it's going to go red. That doesn't mean something went wrong. And it, like, you know, the, this overreaction can get in the way of stepping back and saying, asking, how do we really improve performance, right? Yep, and and think about like red, yellow, green. It always cracks me up sometimes, right? I mean, a lot of times organizations assign red, yellow, or green status based on gut. You know, it, it's really nothing <laughs> real. It's whoever's, whoever's in charge that day, you know, I'm gonna yeah. determine whether we're red, yellow, and green. You don't see that as much in the, on the manufacturing side, right? Because you, you're collecting a lot of data and it's in lockstep and you know if things are out of spec, but on the service side, you do see that quite a bit. You know, are, are we red? Are we yellow? Are we green? And there's one person assigning it. Well, you know, newsflash in the service industry, the team knows, right? They don't, they don't know if they're red or yellow or green, but they know if they're doing well, if they're not, if they have an opportunity to do better, because in a service-based industry, they are getting real-time feedback all the time from the people they are they are interacting with but it is you know quite interesting how we do that and i say that to say sometimes overreaction happens when a metric has gone red but we actually don't have clear accurate valid or valuable limits mm -hmm. identified to really prove that we're mm -hmm. truly red we say we're red because we're different from where we were before and it looks like a big gap 
But if we're still well within specs and well within a reasonable delivery, then we're still green or we at, at worst, we're yellow. Yeah. Well, th so there's maybe uh, I'll add there's a there's another question. So there's the question of what should we measure? There's a question of how do we react? I think maybe tied into the reaction is how should we set goals or targets? You know, if an organization has hit a target at 84.7 percent, like wh how much how much debate and argument went into whether that should have been 84.7 or 85? You know, if someone said like, whoa, no, 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 don't say I don't think I can hit 85. I mean, <laughs> You get that kind of silliness too, right? You get that silliness. You also get get silliness where there are no goals and there are no mm -hmm. limits. There's there's I, mm -hmm. there's just data, and I know you've seen it tons and tons of time. And that's you know that's one of the first things that I look at when I when I see a measure. I'm like, okay, how do we know if we're doing well or not? Yeah. You know, what are we aiming for? But like, it's funny you talk about like that 84.7 or whatever. Sometimes that's just thrown out from, mm -hmm. you know, wherever it comes from. But the way I, th I think about goals, like what makes a really good goal and drives the behavior that you want on a team is not just for that goal to be achievable, but for it to be a developing goal. So if I know by the end of the year, I need to be performing at 90%, then what's stopping me from doing a baseline now? If I'm at 50 50%, it won't necessarily encourage my team. If I show every month you are at 50 cents, you need to be at 90, 50%, you need to be at 90%. What will encourage them is if I stair step that goal and I say within two months, let's be at 60%. Within three months, let's be at 80%. You know, if you do it in that way so that they can go along with the journey to delivery. Now, that doesn't mean that 50% is accept acceptable. That doesn't mean that them achieving that lower target is acceptable. But what it does mean is, is that it is realistic in this human-based human -based business and it inspires them to want to do more. Mm -hmm. So, and, and a lot of that I'm sure has to do with the leadership and the communication. You know, if, if you're helping a team go through a kind of stair-step approach, I imagine you're communicating or setting expectations to where, let's say if you hit, set that goal of 60 and now they hit that, and now you raise the bar to 75, they might say, well, Andrea, come on, we hit our target. And now you're just, you're, 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 you're dangling the carrot a little further out in front of us or whatever analogy you want to use. How, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you manage that, uh, those situations? I, I learned a very good way for me to manage that when I was um, working in that government and defense contracting industry. So again, something to translate over to the service-based industry. And it is actually getting the team to challenge themselves. So getting the team to understand how their actions drive performance. And we as people are inherently competitive. We are, I mean, it, it is in us to be competitive. Some people have it, have it a little worse than others, <laughs> but, but we want to feel that sense of accomplishment. So if you meet with the team on a regular basis, you ensure they understand the measure. You tie this measure into the day-to-day -day operations. You make it a part of their job to know what that information is, to know where we are today. And when I say today, I should be able to go to anyone on the floor and say, hey, how are we performing today? And they should know because it is a part of their life. And if it is a part of their life and they have that sense of competitive competitiveness as an individual and as a team, when they start approaching that stair-step goal, they're going to be looking to challenge themselves because they still have their eye on the long-term goal. And they know that they have to keep working to get there. So the trick is 
for me as a leader not to challenge them, but for me to partner with the team and encourage them to challenge themselves. So can, can you talk about that more or use an example of, um, of, of, of how that played out? Um, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the idea of, you know, drawing out motivation. Um, and, and instead of, you know, you know, I hear a lot of times people say, you know, in, in lean, there's pr this progression where we say, okay, we've learned not to tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. We want to draw out their ideas and the team generally knows best and the leader can be more collaborative than command and control. And then you know, I hear sometimes say, well, okay, yeah, we, we need to tell people why improvement is important. And, and, I, and I wonder, you know, sometimes, you know, if that's really as effective as what I hear you saying, drawing out motivations or goals. So does this come to the question of, uh, is it open-ended questions to the team or how do you balance their motivation which is powerful and necessary with business goals and objectives that also need to be met. The biggest thing is being present. So a lot of times we as leaders or facilitators or internal consultants, you know, we treat the team as though it's, you know, you guys are your own operation and you're sort of answering to me or I'm going to check in every now and then and see how you're doing because I've got other people to talk to other places to go. I need to speak to your performance. So you have to do well. But when you are actually able to embed yourself in that team, when you're able to build trust, when you ask questions, open-ended questions, like you said, that challenge them to think and to be creative, this is when you're able to identify the people in the team that actually influence other team members. Yeah. So when you identify those influencers, then you can essentially, I hate to use the word leverage, but you can partner with them to influence the other team members, the other team members as well. And I, I think just being present is so important because the other thing that does is build trust. And it builds enough trust in the team to know that they can make a mistake, but you all are in this together. So they want, they then want to see you do well. They want to put you in a situation where you have a good news story to tell the people that you report to why? Because now you are one of them. You are a part of their team. You have proven that you have a vested interest. The influencers are speaking on your behalf. They're, they're seeing that they can perform because they met that stair-step target. They want to do better. They want to be that good news story. Yeah. Well, and you know, a, a great leader creates an environment where people choose to follow them where, when there's that level of commitment and collaboration you know toyota people really really emphasize emphasize the idea of mutual trust and respect yes and if that's not already a, you know if that's not part of the fabric or the, of the organization um you mentioned the idea of building trust what, what are some thoughts or examples or a story of, of, of you or another leader that you were working with um you know taking action uh, to build trust? How, how do, do, does somebody have to first recognize, oh gosh, as painful as it might be to recognize that there isn't enough trust? Um, I, I, actually go, I actually go into situations assuming that I'm not trusted. And I do that because I haven't done mm. anything to deserve it or to earn it. And mm. as, as well-intended as I may be, as you know, bubbly and energetic and 
influential as I may be in my words, that won't necessarily drive the behavior that I need. So, so just giving an example for me. So I started a, started a new assignment a couple of months ago and I'm working as an executive in a, a publicly health traded company. Well, I've got this big organization, this, you know, as far as on the org chart, they are, you know, they are under me and reporting into me, but I am very cognizant of the language I use with my team. So I always use the word partnership, mm-hmm. you know, and instead of saying those that report to me, I say those who I work with, yeah. you know, and, and that language really matters. Um, I never try to be the expert in something that I'm not the expert in. I love elevating experts. I love asking questions. I actually don't mind looking dumb. And I will say, I will say that. I will say, you know what? I just don't know. I'm going to ask some questions. If I look dumb, that's fine. But at the end of this conversation, we're both going to be better for it. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I've been about two months, two months in this position. And it, it is really starting. The trust is really starting to ferment now. And, and I could tell, right? Because now they're coming to me with their problems. They're coming to me with solutions for their problems. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for thought partnership in that, where as before it was transactional, right? I'm asking a question, they're giving an answer, they're asking a question, I'm giving an answer. But now it is thought partnership and wanting feedback on that. And a very specific example, I try not to talk too long and rattle on, but I did want to- No, that's right, go ahead. Okay, I want to give you a specific example. So so there's a a very high visible, highly visible, fast-paced project that's going on within the organization right now. And there's a, a specific team within my department that is responsible for a critical piece of that process. And the manager was was really overwhelmed and I could tell the team was doing their best to catch up, but they were so so busy trying to catch up that there was no time to really improve from their perspective, right? There was no time. So instead of me just telling them what they should do, how they could do it differently, I decided to get my hands dirty. So I was able to delegate some of the other things that I'm focused on. And I have worked very closely with that team. And I mean, things that I normally, you know, wouldn't do when you have a large organization, I am getting in actually looking at their data. I have worked with them to redesign their dashboard to tell a story. We have looked at putting some, putting some indicators of success in place so that we can reward individuals and the team even in the midst of the storm, the team needs some sunshine. So we're yeah. finding those places where we can show sunshine. And now I'm starting to get great feedback from that team. You know, thank you so much. We didn't even know that we had the data to answer these questions. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't know that we could be brought out of that fire. We just didn't know. Thank you for getting your hands dirty with us. Yeah. So getting your hands dirty, um, having... You know, I think it requires a lot of strength to say, I don't know. Yeah. And, and hopefully the team uh, responds to that. Like, depending on who their previous leaders were, that might be a bit of a shock to their system. <laughs> to hear a leader say, I don't know, right? But I mean, I think that does build trust in relationships when, when there's that honesty of um, knowing what you don't know and uh, working to get answers or working to get help, even if you... Uh, can't provide it or or better yet, maybe try to draw answers out of the team. Yeah. Sometimes they may be very conditioned and in the habit of asking the boss because that takes in a way I can see where p- employees get comfortable with that because it takes the burden off them. Mm-hmm. The boss has an answer and the boss is wrong. I'm like, eh, well, <laughs> boss's fault, right? 
Definitely. And and I, I think we as as leaders, it is our responsibility. And I use the word thought partnership because a mentor of mine used that word and it really made a lot of sense. And when things come to me as a leader, I, I think it is it is my job to partner with the person who's bringing it to me to be mm-hmm. creative and solving the problem. And, and when I share this concept with some people, they say, well, you know what, just do the work. That just takes too much time. It takes too much time. Mm-hmm. But my thinking is if I'm able to make the investment up front, then we save in the longer run, in the long run, because now these issues, the moment something looks like it's going to become an issue, the team is brave enough to recognize it and we know how to discuss it so that it doesn't become critical. You know, I, I look at operations and service and, and people ask me, you know, what are some indicators that things are running smoothly? And for me, indicators are number one is in issues are invisible to your customer. They have no reason to know if they if they feel like things went smoothly without a hitch, even if things were torn up behind the wall, then you're doing something right as a leader. Mm-hmm. If if your customer has to know every single functional area or department in your organization, you're doing something wrong. Customers don't do business with departments and org structures. They do business with systems. So Mm -hmm. if we can develop a culture where that sort of thing is invisible to the customer, right? And I don't don't mean because we just throw up walls and we kind of fake it until we make it. I mean because we are able to solve problems quickly and still deliver on expectations, then we know we're doing something right. And we can only do that if we identify issues before they make it down the line to the customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and identifying issues and having that honesty to uh, raise the flag instead of covering up the problem and hoping it either doesn't get discovered later or it becomes someone else's problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and I, I don't know why I had this thought, but when you look at metrics in that process, a lot of times we evaluate processes and, and, and we can say, oh, we didn't measure this. We need to add this or we're not tracking this. We need to add that. At the same time, there are some things we probably don't need to track as closely. So, and, and you see it a lot in organizations, right? A lot of adding, 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 but we never stop doing some things that we're doing. We never scale back. So there, there could be metrics that we are tracking on a daily basis, every single day, and we're putting effort in those daily. But once we have it down packed, maybe we should only be looking at it every two weeks mm. and we should spend our time focusing on something else. And you mentioned indicators and one of the other topics we were going to talk about here today, I think it's a really interesting topic, you know, indicators that a metric or metrics are actually resonating with a team or a department. So, you know, it's just, it's just a second ago, you were talking about the idea of, of feedback loops and adjustment of you know, how often do we measure? Um, I guess part of that feedback loop is gauging that level of, uh, of resonance. How, how, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so for me to understand if a metric is resonating or not, then, and I, I'm sort of a people person, but one thing I pay attention to is the visceral response the team and individuals have to fluctuations in performance, right? So if we start to drop low or if we drive high, is there a visceral response that occurs? Meaning, are they automatically trying to do better? Are they talking about it amongst themselves? Or does it take us having a meeting and pointing it out before we start driving driving change. If it requires us to have a meeting and requires that one person who updates the chart to communicate it to the team, then it's probably not resonating as well as it should. 
So this, what we measure should become a fiber of how we operate. And it becomes a fiber when you have that visceral reaction because when something's torn, we all feel it. When something heals, we all know it. And so I look for that. I, I look for indicators of that, right? Do I, like I said, do I have to have a meeting? Blah, blah, blah. The other thing is, are they monitoring it without being prompted to, right? So sometimes we have things that we're measuring week over week over week over week, and things may start to trend downward. So do I have individuals on the team who are willing to step up as leaders and say, you know what, uh, just, for, just for my sanity, I'm going to look at this every day for the next week or two. So what sort of ownership are they taking and are, are they being accountable for that performance, good or bad? And then like we said earlier, are they actually challenging themselves to yeah. do better? And that's how you know if that metric is really resonating or not. Yeah, so what you're saying is um, the last thing you would wanna see is uh, a metric being updated and there's indications that performance is not where it needs to be. And people just walk by the board and either don't look at it or maybe they walk by and look at the board and sigh or uh, I guess that could mean, and, 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 and I want to hear your thoughts here. I don't know if this is different degree, different ways it resonates. It could be that people don't understand the metric. It could be maybe that they don't understand how their work or their ability to improve the work can affect the metric, right? Or what, what, what types of disconnects do you most often see? Yeah, and, and it is really those things that, that you're saying. You know, they don't feel like it applies to them. They feel like they're able to go under the radar. The metric is not in a language that they understand. And, and to be honest, let's talk about language. Sometimes it, it's not even what you're measuring. It's the units of measure. You know, if, if we have a structure where we measure things hour by hour, and then we're reporting things month by month or second by second or, in, or in, in some weird unit, you know, every seventh day or something, then the team may not understand that because they function on an hourly basis. So they're looking for something to be normalized from an hourly standpoint so that they can see, well, how well do we do in the morning hours, in the early afternoon, you know, in, in the late evening on third shift? How well are we doing? So, so we do have to make sure that they understand how their job influences that metric and that it is in a language they understand. Um, one of the things I really love to do, you know, sometimes we go into meetings and we have the same person reporting on the same thing, you know, every single time. Oh, okay. You know, Karen, tell us how we're doing with quality or, you know, Jim, how are we doing with turnaround time on, on unit one or whatever it is. But what I like to do is pass the buck. I like to give others a chance to talk about, the metric and to present how it's performing to the team. And this is not an exercise in embarrassing people. It is an exercise in identifying where we may be gapped in helping others understand. And it's also an exercise in developing leaders within the team. And developing leaders, I mean, that that's, I mean, I'll just bring it back to Toyota because, you know, I was recently in Japan and was there with some former Toyota leaders from uh, Kentucky and, and one from Australia. And they put such a focus on developing leaders, developing team members. And I get, I, I get caught in the trap sometimes where I start thinking the goal is improvement, where I think they're always looking at two sides of the coin. You get improvement through developing people. And, and I would look and say, well, I'm engaging people. But engaging people 
I mean, the, there's a difference in language there, right? Engaging versus developing. I think developing, to Toyota's credit, is, is a deeper, uh, more powerful commitment. You know, if you look at their metrics boards, you know, I saw this in San Antonio a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what, what a lot of organizations might call huddle boards, team mm -hmm. boards, performance board, um, performance center. Um, they call it the FMDS, the Floor Management Development System. And like, that's a very powerful intentional choice of words to, to um, not just, it's not just tracking results and tracking what we're doing and seeing the impact on results, but, but that focus on developing people, I, I think goes beyond just, uh, it's, it's more than a superficial label yep. to them, it seems. You used the key word there and, and the word you used was intentional. And mm -hmm. development really is intentional. You know, I, I actually think everyone has the ability to develop and grow in some mm -hmm. sort of capacity. And, and leadership is not a role, right? I, I think leadership is the, the position you play within, within your group of peers. I think mm -hmm. that's really what it is. And, and I think you can have people who lead in, you know, one thing, but not, a, not another. You know, there are people who lead across the board. There are all sorts of leaders and influencers. And I, and I think our job as actual named leaders or consultants or whoever we are, our job is to help strengthen that within the teams. Right. Our job is to help identify it and strengthen it and to understand that every single person, every single person mm -hmm. has the capacity to develop. I don't care. I don't care if it's Jim Roberts, who's been in the same role for 30 years and he just seems happy and he's waiting for retirement. Or if it's Linda Sue, who's been there for seven days and has broken everything she's touched. Yeah, every yeah. single person has yeah. the ability to develop. And when you enter with that belief, you become intentional in identifying ways to develop these people at an individual level that mm -hmm. has a goal. And the goal then would be delivery and improvement. Well, well said, well said, well, good point there. Um, I'm, I'm gonna come back one other thing, kind of put you on the spot, because you talk about development and everyone can be developed. Earlier, you mentioned mentors. So I was wondering, and, and, and I'm thinking back, boy, this would be an interesting question to ask almost any guest. You know, is, uh, you know who, who are some of the key mentors for you? Whether you, you, know, you don't have to call them out by name necessarily, but um, if you, uh, I'd be curious to hear some of your reflections on someone who took the effort uh, in, in, into mentoring and helping develop you. Oh, definitely. And, and I've, I've had, a, had a few. I'll, I'll talk about one or two just how, as time permits. So there's one particular person. Um, he was a manager for me at an organization I was with. So my team was really struggling. We had a manager who was just not the strongest leader at that time. And I think he's actually a strong person. He was just misaligned in his role and he was managing a team of new hires and, and we were really struggling. That manager ended up getting reassigned and another manager adopted us into his team. Um, I really paid attention with how he assimilated us into the team. You know, I focused a lot on that because he had to build us up as a team and then merge us in with his existing team. So I grew to gain a lot of respect for him. In our one-on-one -on -one meetings with him as my manager, I talked with him about his leadership philosophy and, you know, just why he made the decisions that he made. And he was one of the first people to actually identify me as as a leader. So he essentially made me his chief of staff so that I could see all the things that he saw and I began to see, hey, you know, I can 
do more than being an individual contributor. I can do more than, you know, not really owning something, but just trying to influence it. I can do more. He, he ended up leaving the organization and he and I stayed in touch very much so. And it is because of him that I am operating in this executive role that I currently have now. So he has, his influence is directly responsible for helping make some of my dreams come true. And I'm actually living beyond, <laughs> you know, what my goals were. And it, it is because of a leader like him who was willing to take the time and share with me why he made the decisions he made and who was willing to take a chance on me. Yeah. Well, I, and that's well, that's well said. And it, I think it's great when, uh, yeah, when, when someone sees potential in you, especially early, early stages of the career of a career, I had some people like that. Um, you know, my days at General Motors were in a lot of ways that was a brutal environment and it was dragging me down and, you know, you wonder like, uh, trying to find your way in a career. But yeah, we have one or two key people um, who see potential and, and help you see it or help you take some steps to develop that potential um, goes a long way. You know, I understand you know, sometimes people know they've made an impact and, and, and maybe sometimes they don't even realize they made an impact because maybe they were helping a lot of people and, you know, or they, you know, so anyway, um, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked, but I, I had an opportunity to thank uh, one of my mentors um, about a year ago. It was uh, my favorite uh, teacher from high school who is oh, now wow. retired. You know, he's a history teacher. I took um, classes with him six out of the eight semesters of high school. And, you know, I had a chance, you know, uh, somebody had run into him and anyway, you know, we had a phone call and I just wanted to thank him. You know, he had lots and lots of students. And I don't know if you even remember me. I think he did, or at least he pretended. <laughs> uh, being able to thank someone who's had an influence um, is a, a good opportunity when you get the chance. Yeah, I, I agree. It it really matters. And it's, it's interesting. You know, we talked about like patient journeys and customer journeys. And, you know, we have our own career and development development journeys. And I had the opportunity, and this is a little sidetrack, but just to give you a little more about me, I... Yeah. Through Facebook, I was able to reconnect with um, one of my teachers from high school. And one thing a lot of people don't know about me is I actually have a learning deficit and, and it is uh, with reading. So I have a lot of difficulty with reading comprehension and I always struggle with that. And while my you know measured IQ was really high, I would not always do well on um, tests, especially if it involved mm -hmm. reading. So history, English, that sort of thing. My brain just did not work like that. And this teacher, mm -hmm was the first one to really identify what was going on with me. And mm -hmm. he taught me strategies to help in my reading um, and also to help with my test taking. I can remember um, one time I went to his class, it was history and I was really nervous because I, I knew my brain was gonna lock up. And he said, you know, how do you study when you're at home? I said, well, I, you know, I'm, I lay on the floor in my bedroom with the book and I, I kind of just, draw pictures and to make the story make sense to me. And that's how it has to work. And this man during the test pulls me out, takes me to the back of the room, sets a bunch of desks in the back to siphon off a corner for myself and tells me lay on the floor, just act like you're at home. Mm. Here's some paper to draw pictures, take as much time as you need on this test. I'll go talk with your next teacher and let her know you'll be there when you get there. My grades went up in history because of him. He awesome. really changed my life. I made it through college <laughs> yeah. because, because of him. And now, of course, you know, audiobooks are, are my best friend. But yeah. 
yeah, I, I just going back to tell someone thank you, mm-hmm. it, it really does something to your heart. And I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure it does something to theirs as well. Yeah. Well, and it's awesome to hear, um, you know, your, your stories of people that have had an impact on, on you that way. It's really a nice, nice thing to hear. And um, as, as you discovered through, you know, I, I could not have gotten through electrical engineering school. <laughs> my, my, my dad and my father-in-law are both electrical engineers and that, that's a different kind of smart and a different <laughs> talent there, right? So we all have uh, our own talents and gifts to, uh, to tap into. I'm glad you've discovered, um, you know, a path to, to lean and uh, performance improvement or whatever label we're, uh, we're going to put to it. Like you said, it's, um, it's about people. If you do this work, you better be interested in people. <laughs> You got that right. <laughs> yeah. Um, do, you, do you have any final um, thoughts here as we wrap up? Or are there other, you know, kind of key points or advice or best practices related to metrics, uh, improvement, leadership that, that you'd want to share? Yeah, I think I would say, you know, data is important. But if you're focusing on it to the point where you're just so stressed out and you don't know if you're measuring the right things or not, you're, you're probably working in a silo and you should engage the team because they typically know what needs to be measured. They typically know where the hot spots are. Um, if, if you're having trouble on coming up with an actual way to translate that measure, there's a great book that I recommend. And I'm, I, I don't have the author's name in front of me, but hopefully you can, um, you can note that when, when we final this. But the book is called How to Measure Anything. And that is an amazing, I mean, okay. anything that you want to measure, this book can give you some guidance on it and it, it'll help you come up with some really creative ways on how to look at data and how to look at the situation and identify what it is that you should measure so that you can in turn manage that and then, and then develop. And I'll just say for those leaders who are in place now and you may be a bit overwhelmed, you know, you're, you're facing down the barrel of some things that have been in place long before you. I, I wish to you the courage to step outside of the box. I wish to you the courage to measure the things that others will not measure. And I wish to you the courage to allow your team to be human and make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So that's my final. <laughs> that's a great thought to end things on. Um, I'll, I'll put a link to that book uh, in, in the blog post for the episode. It, it's the book by Douglas Hubbard. Yes. How, that's to, measure, how to measure anything. I, I did a quick uh, quick Amazon search here. Um, Andrea, as we wrap up, how, how can people find you online? Is LinkedIn the best place? Is there a website you'd point people to? Yeah. So right now, LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Just Andrea Hardaway. And I know Mark will have that link that link in the write-up as well. I will have a website coming out at some point next year, but I, I don't have that quite yet, but um, I'll be sure to find a way to share that when it does come out. But that's the best way. I love connecting with new people. I love going going beyond the timeline. So if you want to talk with me, just reach out and let me know. And I'd definitely be interested in hearing other, story, other stories as well. Okay. Well, thank you, Andrea. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for sharing your stories and thoughts and experiences and having a really good conversation here today. I don't know if we can measure how good, (laughs) I hope you feel good about the conversation. We'll measure it by my smile. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Andrea. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the lean blog podcast for lean news and commentary updated daily. Visit www.leanblog.org. 
If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.